Well, good morning, everybody. It's always a uh, privilege to preach God's Word. When I see people eating, it reminds me I'm in a, a supper club or something, but I have to readjust that we're in church. I um, wanted to give a brief exposition on a, a scripture. You know how sometimes scriptures go around in your mind and you say, I, I really want to get into this scripture. And this is one that's sort of near and dear to my heart, so I want to give you a short exposition on 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. But let me begin by saying this. There is, in order to set the, the playing field here, there is this false premise, false canard uh, in the evangelical church to go something like this. There's the church at rest, where everything is peaceful, and there is the church under heavy persecution. But I think that's a false dichotomy. I think the church is always under persecution. I think the minute we roll out of bed in the morning, we're under the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we're fighting it. If you're living the Christian life, you're sort of like a spiritual salmon swimming upstream against the grain of the world, the morals of the world, the the belief systems of the world, and how the world thinks. Now, you don't have the persecution. You may not have the persecution that some have, but they're Right now, the men in the black trench coats are not going to come here and take us away yet. We don't know what the future holds, but right now we don't have that problem. Um, In some places, the the persecution of the church is quite severe, but they're enduring. But your suffering is part of the Christian life. Every individual who's a Christian is suffering in some way. And so... What I want to do is give you a, sort of an exposition of, of this particular passage, but first let me set the, uh, the groundwork. If you recall in 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church had some concerns. First of all, they, they were concerned if they were really doing the right thing, if they were really living the Christian life, if they were really being faithful. And second of all, they had eschatological concerns. Uh, my aunt or uncle or my loved one who has died, are they going to miss the second coming of Christ? And Paul answers that and says, no, indeed, they're not. The Lord is coming. He's going to uh, bring with him those who have passed away. And you'll forever be with the Lord. You will meet the Lord in the air. Now, that word, apentasis, means to greet somebody back. In other words, you have a group of people, and that and person leaves, and they come back. That's the sense of the, the Greek word here. So Paul was encouraging the Thessalonians. Uh, some felt that they... Uh, you know, they may have been missed out, we're not living the proper way, but Paul encourages them. Now, there are several elements uh, in both of these epistles that sort of join together. But in this particular passage we're going to go through, I want you to see one thing. If you get nothing else, there's one thing I want you to see, and that's the specific language of Paul. Uh, He doesn't mince words. He doesn't give sort of fuzzy answers to things. His language is extremely specific, and we as Christians have to know that. So let, let's open up to the uh, Second Thessalonians. I'll read, it's a short chapter. I'll read it. And this chapter has a lot of issues that we're going to go through and see. Um, pay spe- specific attention to, the, to suffering, that word, and to the eschatological uh, language that he's using about the return of Christ. Let's read it. Says Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, 
and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are now suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very short chapter, a very powerful chapter. If you look at the first four verses, this is the greeting. Notice what he says. Grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. First thing I want you to see is that grace and peace are supernatural things. They emanate from God. If you have a secular person, an unsaved person, they go, hey, grace and peace. Well, their reference point is totally different than yours. In fact, they may may even not have a privilege to say those things because grace and peace is a supernatural thing. Paul says this, again, specifically to set apart the Thessalonians from worldly considerations or worldly people. Grace and peace are a supernatural thing. Um, The world believes that grace and peace comes from material things that are going well. You know, just Cadillacing through life. Everything's okay. The children are obeying. You have a good job. Your spouse is obeying. Everything is great. Um, but that's not what the world, that's what, that the Christian life. Grace and peace from, from God and from a regenerated mind. This is where our peace comes from. It doesn't come from our circumstances. Uh, it doesn't come from even our particular emotions at a certain time because we can't trust our emotions. They are a supernatural thing that is given to us. Our minds are regenerated and that creates the grace and the peace that comes from God. Again, the, as in 1 Thessalonians, the Christians may have felt that they had failed in some aspect of the faith. But notice the language that Paul says. He says that their faith is growing abundantly. Their faith is growing abundantly. Now, in the Christian life, we all know, we've all had this, and we do this almost every day. We um, feel like we take one step forward and then two, two or three or four steps back, right? We're in front of the mirror saying, hey, I kicked that besetting sin in the head. Now I can move on to something else. And two minutes later, you do the exact thing you thought you kicked in the head. And you're sort of like, oh, I failed again. And we've all done that. But if you see what Paul is saying, if we concentrate on the word of God, if we're doing our best to mortify our sin, we're making progress. Now, you may not see that progress, but we're making that progress. And notice what he says, too. How do we know we're making progress as individuals and the church? He tells us, he says, your love for one another is increasing. And that's part of the Christian life. If you want to, one one aspect is our faith is increasing. 
And the other complementary thing that happens simultaneously is love for the brethren. Love for the brethren is a sign that we're making spiritual progress. Uh, you recall 1 John 4.20, a pretty powerful admonition. If you hate your brother, you are a murderer. Pretty powerful. Uh, I remember many years ago, I was asked to preach on up in New York, in eastern Long Island, and after the service, we came back to the pastor's house to uh, do a Bible study, and it was on that passage. You should always love the brethren, never hate the brethren. And I remember saying, you, should, you have to love the brethren, always love the brethren. And I remember there was this older gentleman with his back to the wall and his arms folded, and he said, this is one of those things you never forget when you're in ministry. He says, uh, I don't hate the brethren. I would call it strong dislike. <laughs> so it was, it was like one of those memorable things. But in any event, Paul is here states that he is boasting about their faith. They might not realize it, but they're making progress, and that should be an encouragement to you. You are making progress. If you are following the word of God, if you're making every effort to reflect on your life, you'll make progress. It may be small progress, but you're making progress. Notice what he says in the second half of uh, the fourth verse. Your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in your afflictions that you are enduring. Now recall, if we go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says to them, you're going to suffer. You're a church, you're a faithful church, you're going to suffer. He doesn't say you may suffer, you may run into some opposition. He tells them right out, you are going to suffer. And here... He says, you are faithful in your persecutions and in your afflictions. Now, this is absolutely contrary to the health and wealth gospels that we see today. Uh, you know, you have to be perfectly healthy and have money, and that's, that's success. Uh, that's in complete opposition to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying you're standing firm among your afflictions and persecutions. Now, I think there are two things going on here. One is they're getting persecutions from non-Christians and certainly from the state. But there's also afflictions. Affliction could be anywhere from physical violence to physical ailments. I think that's part of it, too. Afflictions are physical ailments. But notice that their spiritual success is bound up with what? Adversity. Their success is bound up with adversity. So the Christian life is not something where you're not going, you want to avoid uh, persecution or anything of that nature. You can't avoid it. It's part and parcel if you're living the Christian life. Uh, there's many churches today that teach the Christian life without teaching about repentance or sin. You know, Jesus is going to do something for you. Uh, Jesus understands you, and he's going to come beside you and be your best friend. And all that is true, but there has to be repentance first. Uh, I don't know if you've seen these, uh, this promotion, uh, He Gets Us. You know, have you seen that? He Gets Us. And it always concerns, you know, that they're compassionate, and Jesus understands that you're down, and you're, but there's no mention of repentance. All these things are true, but repent. The, the, Jesus does get you. You are a sinner on your way to hell. You need to repent. That's what he gets. And he wants to give you eternal life, but we have to take that step to a, a belief. Now, notice the first half of verse 5. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Boy, there's a lot of suffering going on, isn't there? It's just, it's just always there. It just seems to be always there. Persecution and suffering are not to be eschewed by the, the Christian. You can't avoid it. You're going to run into it. 
And so we have to live uh, the Christian life in that way. But notice that God's stamp of approval is on them because they're suffering. It's an odd thing. It's not the opposite. Well, you have no suffering, you're all healthy, you're all wealthy, and God really loves that. Of course he does, but that's not part of the Christian life. Persecution sometimes serves, doesn't it, as a negative barometer. Uh, the amount of, that we're living for Christ and the amount of persecution or resistance we get are sort of conjoined together. The more we lead, lead the Christian life, the more we want to be pure, the more we want to be moral, the more we want to follow God, the more persecution we're going to get. It could be around the water cooler at work or even in the home or among friends or among family. We're going to get that persecution. Uh, in today's age, many churches have retreated from the truth because they don't want that resistance. They've backed off on six-day creation. You know, we have to seem scientific. We can't seem like country bumpkins, so we have to get rid of six-day creation. Uh, same-sex attraction, that's a big thing even in our denomination. As long as you're not engaging in sexual activity, you can have that attraction in your mind. Uh, some churches have even gone and accepted transgenderism or same-sex marriage backing away from biblical truth. Why? Because they don't want the resistance from the world. And I hate to say it, and having been in the ministry, I know there's some pastors that they want to keep their jobs. They don't want to stir up any trouble, keep everything smooth, but that's not why you go into the ministry. Do something else. Drive a truck, be an accountant, but don't be in the ministry if that's uh, what you're doing. Notice the second half of uh, verse 5. He says, you're worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Suffering, is once again, is integral to the Christian life. A person, once again, Paul says that God's imprimatur on your life is a stamp of approval if you're suffering. And it doesn't mean that you have to be suffering to be holy. That's not what he's saying. But the fact that you are suffering because you are a Christian and because you're standing for the truth is an indicator that your Christian life is fruitful. Now, isn't it true... And, you know, I was trained as a journalist, and I'm, I'm a news hound, so I, I, love to, I love to watch the news. But if you want to get your blood pressure up immediately, just start reading the news. And there's a lot of things going on in our world that can get us really, really angry. And it's a, it's a natural tendency to really be angry at non-Christians, isn't it? It's just our nature. Like, why, why is he acting like that? Why did they make that decision? Uh, that seems so unfair, that's not right, that's immoral, etc., etc. Well, we have to remember these are unredeemed people. But it affects us as Christians. We get really upset about these things. But we can know that what? What can we know? We can know that justice is coming. Justice is coming to the world. Salvation is a serious business. And I always say, I remark to my wife and I remark to friends when I watch a college football game, and the stadium is filled with 100,000 people. I sit back and I wonder, how many of those people know the Lord? Right there is a concentration of the world. How many of those people know the Lord? How many of those people are on their way to hell? How many of those people are even thinking about their eternal destiny? And many people don't. It's not even as if they've rejected Christ or rejected the gospel. They have, but they're not thinking about their eternal destiny Satan keeps them very busy doing things, uh, distracted, and so forth, and they're not thinking about there's going to come a time when you're not going to be alive and you're going to stand before God. Many people are not not thinking in those terms. But notice what he says in verse 6. 
Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction, notice the language, those who afflict you. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter, aren't we? Justice is on its way. God will reward the saved and he will mete out justice to the unsaved. Notice what he says in verse 7 as we continue reading. And to grant relief. I believe the King James says, rest with us or rest. Now, don't we all want rest? You know, as you get older, I'm getting older now, you get a little tired, you know. Um, You go through many difficult things in life, persecutions, disappointments, and we're all tired. And we want rest. But when will we, as a Christian, when will we truly rest? Is it going to be because maybe tomorrow will be better than today or the day after will be better than today? That's sort of a false optimism. No, it's when Christ comes back and balances the scales of justice. And we can take hope in that because we know that injustice, the injustice that we see in our own lives, the injustices that we see in the world are only what? Temporary. It's all temporary, brothers and sisters. So I know we all get very frustrated, but we have to in our hearts say it's going to come to an end, whether it be in this life, we, we get things squared away, or in the next life, Christ will bring it to an end. But injustice is only temporary. Even people who are missionaries, and you've heard of missionaries going through horrible tribulations, some have been killed, some are under horrible persecution, they know that justice is coming and that the persecution is only temporary. So the question is, when will we rest? When will the Christian truly have rest? Let's continue reading. Paul tells us, we will rest when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is when we will rest. That is when the Christian will have rest. Did you notice the word vengeance? He says, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus loved everybody. I thought he spent most of his time blessing the bunny rabbits in the trees. You know, the the picture of Jesus that we get from the media. He loves everybody. Doesn't make any difference what your lifestyle is, how you're living, um, what you believe about the Bible. He just loves you equally. One of the great, I think, I hate to say, I hate to use the H word, but one of the great heresies of the evangelical church is that Jesus just loves everybody. He died for everybody, he loves everybody, and he loves everybody equally. See, the playing field is equal. Such is not the case, we know that. But notice that Paul says that Christ will bring vengeance on those. Who will he bring vengeance on? Uh, is he going to bring vengeance on people because they weren't religious? It doesn't say that. Uh, does he say because you weren't a nice person and didn't walk little old ladies across the road? It doesn't say that. Does he say because you weren't nice to animals? None of that. He's very specific on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. To not know the gospel is to not know God. Conversely, to know the gospel is to know God. And there are many people out there, many religions out there that are sincere in their faith. Uh, nowadays, it's, uh, 
not even a particular denomination or religion. It's people saying that they're spiritual. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. I don't know what that means. It can mean a number of things. It means that you're creating a God or a, a, a barometer of morality or spirituality in your own head. There's no, there's no barometer. There's no benchmark for you. You're making up in your own head. Uh, or there's something new now, people wearing the badge of atheism. You know, you see that when you see a, a, a profile of people, religion, atheist. Have you seen that? It's almost like a badge. You know, they're trying to say, I'm smarter than you. See, I use science. I, I don't use mythology or anything. I'm smarter than you. So they're misguided, but they're going to end up under the vengeance of God. They may even have some ethical principles. They may even have ethical principles that echo Christianity, but they're not redeemed. And therefore, they're under the vengeance of God. There's even sects of, Jude, of excuse me, Hinduism that believe you don't help people if they're in distress because you may interfere with their karma. So if you see a, a, a sick person lying there or somebody in distress, you don't, you don't touch them because they're working out their, their cause and effect. It, it's absurd, but that's not the gospel. And so the vengeance that's going to be brought by Christ on the world is those who do not obey the gospel. This is a scary scenario. Um, and many people think not only are they good, many people think by persecuting the church, they're being good. Because after all, these Christians have all kinds of horrible rules and regulations. They're haters. They hate gay people. They tell people not to have sex before marriage. Oh, all these rules and regulations, it just, it just binds up people. So I'm doing a good deed by persecuting these people. But notice what it says. These people will suffer. How will they suffer? Continue reading. He says it very clearly. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The sense of the Greek there is, if you've ever been at the beach and a giant rogue wave comes in and sort of hits everybody and sort of wipes them, washes them away. That's the sense here. They'll be washed away. Eternal destruction. Now, of course, there's a debate on, to, on what that means. There's some commentators that, that believe that means annihilation of some kind. And there's many even Jewish texts that say talk about annihilation. But we know from you know, other scriptures that that is not the case. For example, Mark 9.44 where the fire is never quenched and the worm dieth not. I remember uh, years ago witnessing to somebody, and they were just they just didn't want to hear it. They were like, yeah, okay. But then when I quoted that verse, you could see their jaw drop and the color drop from their face. It's sobering because it's eternal. And uh, we have to be serious about these things. We have to have compassionate, we have to be compassionate rather for the lost. Their destiny, their eternal destiny is not good. Uh, continuing verse 10, he says when he comes, when will Christ come? He's very specific again, on that day, right? It's not like somewhere on the calendar, you know, Christ will come back, he'll decide when to come back. He has a day picked out on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was what? was believed. It's going to be a good day for you if you're a believer. It's going to be a very bad day for the reprobate. It's unfortunate. But God is not, doesn't mix, mince words. Uh, he's not going to give brownie points to people who don't believe but are sort of nice. He says on that day, what day? 
the day of judgment and consummation of all things. There's going to come a time when all things and all the scales of justice will be balanced. I know you've heard the false statement, maybe you heard it in school, maybe you heard it in the news. Uh, It's a very common thing that history goes in a circle, it's a big cycle. History goes around and around in a circle. That is not the biblical understanding of history. History is more like one of those, if you've ever seen those speeding Japanese trains that do like 300 miles an hour, you ever see one of those? That's history. It's a 300-mile-an-hour train heading in one direction, and that's the return of Christ. All of history is a giant funnel going toward the return of Christ. Christ is the, the emperor, if you will, of history. He's going to bring everything to a conclusion on that particular day. Now, let me stop here for a moment, and if you'll excuse me, um, I'm going to sort of ride my hobby horse. There's some things, everybody's got a little hobby horse, but um, there's a branch of Christianity. We're talking about the eschatological end of all things. Christ comes back, uh, separates the sheep from the goats, and we're in eternity, but there's a branch of Christianity who doesn't believe that, and it's the most popular view uh, in eschatology in America, among the evangelical evangelical Christians, and I'm referring to the pre-tribulational rapture. You've heard this. You understand this. Uh, This teaching says that, you know, suddenly Christ will appear and Christians will be taken out of the world and then there'll be people left saying, where did they go? I've been left behind. And Christ will not be visible. Now, this is, you know, we could scoff at this, but this is the most popular view of Christ's return. Uh, even if you go on Facebook or on the news media, there seems to be, a, especially with what's going on in the Middle East, there seems to be a new book every day about are we living in the end times? And my answer is, uh, of course we are, because uh, the end times started at the ascension of Christ. It didn't start in 1948 when Israel became a, a country again. Uh, the stopwatch of, of prophecy didn't start again at that, that time. Excuse me. Uh, so, is this a teaching? Is this a biblical teaching that the church will be taken out and that they will continue? Now, if you read, you would think if you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it would put it all to bed. The language is pretty clear. Um, Christ comes back. The sheep and the goat are separated and we're in eternity. So nobody's going to be saying, where did they go? And one of the principles, if you want to clear up this issue or any difficult biblical issue, I always say, just read the words of Scripture. It seems very simple, but that's what brought me out of a lot of false teaching. Read what the Bible says. Don't read a system. Uh, don't let a person, like I, I'm unfortunately, when I listen to uh, some fundamentalist preachers, they have a habit of using five different, ten different Scriptures to make a point. But you're not really going to learn the Bible that way. Uh, I'm going to violate that precept right now because I'm going to ask you to put your, your finger in your place in, in 2 Thessalonians. Just go briefly with me back to the Gospel of John. Back to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. I just want to point this out because this, this shows you what happens when you just read Scripture. Okay, when you're not being led around by somebody trying to make a point, but you just read Scripture. John chapter 6, go to verse 39. This is what the apostle says. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on what day? The last day. Next verse, the following verse. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on what day? The last day. Drop down to verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Beloved, on what day will the, let's have a little test. On what day will the dead be raised? On the last day, the day that Christ has appointed. And nobody's going to be standing around saying, where did they go? Maybe you've seen the posters, you know, of people being taken up and the cars are crashing and planes are, you know, crashing and all, because their occupants have been taken. Friends, is that, what this, is that what this passage of Scripture says? It says that our Lord will come back in flaming fire, judge the wicked, separate the sheep from, sheep from the goats, and we are in eternity. Just read the words of Scripture. So it's a myth. Unfortunately, just like the Bible says, stay away from Jewish myths, right? It, we also have Christian myths that we have to deal with in our contemporary society, contemporary things that we read. And we have to be aware of them. But if we just read God's Word, it's all cleared up. I'm going to give you one more Scripture. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. It's one that caught my eye years ago. Job 14.12. Here's what the book says. So a man lies down and rises not again until the heavens be no more. He will not wake nor be roused out of his sleep. I think that's the final nail in the coffin of this pre-tribulational rapture. Man lies down. He does not rise again until the heavens be no more. Right there. Okay. I will now dismount from my hobby horse. Let's close out by looking at verse 11. Back in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11. He says, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. You see, the elect, are, as the elect, as believers, we're made acceptable to God. We're not only made acceptable to God, but he keeps us going by his power. Now, this doesn't mean that we're passive. doesn't mean that we don't do anything, but we are kept by his power. And we have to remember that, not just in an eschatological sense, but in our everyday life. When the alarm clock goes off at 6 o'clock in the morning, we roll out of bed and there's the world, the flesh, and the devil fighting against us. We are kept by his power. Verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace, there's that word again, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. How does a Christian, basic question, how does it, what's the best way for a Christian to bring glory to God, to be faithful to the word? If we're faithful to the word, we are bringing glory to God. It may not, you may not get the, the laudations, of, be lionized by the world at large, but you're giving glory to God by being faithful to, not retreating, but by keeping faithful to the word. And once again, grace is a supernatural thing. 
All these things are possible because of a supernatural thing called grace, which he gives us, and it does not come from the world. Well, I hope this has been helpful in some way. This is a short study, but this is one of those verses that have been, or passages that have been, was on my heart, and I knew some way I had to find its way out, and I got an opportunity today to do it. Let's just close in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is very clear. And we don't read these words lightly, Lord. We know that you will come someday in flaming fire. But for the Christian, it's a good day. It's a day of redemption. It's a day of reward. It's a day of the scales being balanced. For the unsaved, it's quite another day. But give us compassion for the, un- for the lost. Give us compassion for our neighbors, our relatives, our friends who don't know you that they may be part and glory when you come and not be in fear or not be under the vengeance of your judgment because you are the ultimate judge. And now we just ask you to open our hearts and minds to worship as we worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen.